For nearly a quarter of the 20th century, one of the most successful and prolific bootleggers in Canadian history held sway over Hamilton, Ontario. A figure of public fascination and police frustration, wearing fancy pinstripe suits and fedoras, and always ready with a quote for a newspaper reporter. He vanished without a trace in April of 1944, and to this day, nobody has found concrete evidence of what happened to him. This is the story of Rocco Perry. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is What? Explain. Rocco Perry was born in Plati, Italy, on December 29, 1887, and moved to the United States when he was 16, lying to the customs agents by saying that he was meeting family in the country. He worked in Massena, New York, as a laborer for four years, learning to read and write in English, before moving to Canada at the age of 20. He began getting involved with Black Hand organizations in northern Ontario, or what would later become known as the Mafia, in 1912, when he enlisted a man named Alfredo Contalesso to burn down a house belonging to a prominent Italian family who had refused to pay extortion money to Perry's associates. Contalesso was soon caught and offered to testify against Perry in exchange for commuting his sentence. Perry caught wind of this and fled to Toronto before the police could get to his house, where he was able to hide in the city. While he was hiding out in Toronto, he met 23-year-old Besha Tobin, known as Bessie, the wife of a bakery delivery man and mother of two daughters. The two seemed to hit it off immediately, and Bessie convinced her husband to rent a room to Perry. After three months of Perry renting a room, Bessie did the unthinkable and left her husband and two children to go live with Rocco. When Bessie became pregnant with Rocco's child in the fall of 1913, Rocco tried to find legitimate work as a laborer, digging the Welland Canal, which ran between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. While he did manage to find work, the pay was barely enough to get by, and both Rocco and Bessie often went without food or proper clothing as they tried to get by on his salary alone. Bessie gave birth to the child in May of 1914, and Rocco called him Anterico, as he wanted the child to have a name that reflected his Italian heritage. When the First World War began in July of 1914, construction on the canal stopped, and Rocco and thousands of others lost jobs as laborers. With the high unemployment level and desperate need for money, the area became a hotbed of organized crime, and Rocco found himself going back to the bad old ways in order to provide for his family. Unfortunately, their child Enterico fell ill with gastroenteritis and ended up passing away in October. Still grieving the loss of their young child, Rocco and Bessie scraped enough money together to move to Hamilton and buy a small house. Rocco started work as a baker, using the main floor of the house as a bakery, and living with Bessie on the floor above. However, the bakery was mainly a front for the other business going on in the back of the store, where the Perrys ran a small brothel and a gambling racket, particularly in horse racing. As his illicit side businesses became more successful, Rocco hired workers in factories in industrial Hamilton to act as his agents, paying them a percentage of all the bets they took, as well as strongmen to help protect his burgeoning territory from unwanted advances. Bessie was in charge of the books for the whole operation, as well as handling the girls for the house of ill repute, and she had a knack for it, being able to manage both the financial risk and the people involved in the operation. While all this was happening, Prohibition was making its way across North America. The Canada Temperance Act of 1878 gave provinces the power to hold a vote to enact Prohibition, and during the First World War, it seemed unconscionable to have any sort of revelry, as family members and friends were sent over to Europe to potentially die in battle. 
On September 16, 1916, with the passing of Bill 100, Ontario became the last province to be officially dry, leaving Quebec as the only province with legal liquor. All drinks above 2.5% alcohol were illegal in Ontario, with the gaping loophole of tonics being ordered for medical or scientific purposes. One of the main supporters of prohibition in Ontario was quoted as saying that this act will abolish the liquor traffic in Ontario. This statement was proved, well, wrong in quite rapid succession. Within two and a half years of Bill 100 passing, Ontarian doctors wrote out prescriptions for over one million quarts of liquor. Bill 100 also did not forbid breweries and distilleries from making and exporting liquor, as closing down those industries would result in a loss of jobs. Likewise, people were still able to import liquor from outside of Ontario, so long as it was for use in their own homes. This combination of factors opened up an enormous opportunity for enterprising people that weren't afraid to skirt the law. Rocco and Bessie dipped their toes into bootlegging, or smuggling illegal liquor, by buying mail-order liquor from Montreal and selling it in the back room of their bakery for 50 cents a glass. Their success was great enough that they were ordering enough liquor to not only supply themselves, but hotels that were losing money because less people were coming in without the draw of alcohol. As Rocco and Bessie gained more and more money, they started living a very prosperous life. Rocco hosted parties and rented boats on Lake Ontario. Bessie started buying fancy jewelry, and they started looking for a nicer house than their current combination bakery-slash-brothel-slash-apartment. Life was good for the Perrys. The Canadian government, still under pressure from abolitionists to close the loopholes in the Canadian Temperance Act, added into the War Measures Act, that it would be illegal to import any beverage with more than 2.5% alcohol into Canada, nor would it be legal to transport liquor into any part of Canada where it was illegal. Therefore, the Quebec liquor delivery to Ontario would be illegal as of Christmas Eve 1917. Production of all alcohol for consumption within Canada was banned at the end of 1918, making prohibition in full effect. To the Perrys, still very successfully running their burgeoning bootlegging empire, the issue now remained how to maintain a steady stream of alcohol to their waiting consumers. Using a new car and a cover as a salesman for the Superior Macaroni Company, a front that would come in handy often in his bootlegging career, Rocco traveled around the Great Lakes areas, making connections and introductions along the way, and started moving beer and liquor by boat shortly thereafter. While many states in the United States were dry at the time, meaning liquor was prohibited, Supplies on the border were available enough that it could be transported from the United States to Ontario with relative ease. The 18th Amendment, the abolition of alcohol, was being ratified at a rapid pace in the United States, and soon Rocco and Bessie needed other options. On January 1, 1920, all the Wars Measures Acts that were put in place in Canada, including those banning the import and transport of liquor, expired, and the Perrys were perfectly positioned to take advantage. With their extensive delivery system and contacts, they would be able to transport some of this new flood of alcohol to their waiting clients. Two weeks later, on January 16th, abolition of alcohol was passed in the United States, making it the law of the land. This opened up an enormous American market for any Canadian that had a large amount of distribution contacts and was willing to take a risk. Rocco Perry was just that person. With enough boats to transport the liquor across the Great Lakes, the connections with breweries and distilleries that were trying to make sales, and enough money to bribe customs agents to look the other way, Perry seemed set for success. 
By the fall of 1922, the Perrys and their associates were moving about a thousand cases of liquor a day and were bringing in about $400,000 a month, which is almost $6 million today. By 1924, there were more than 1,500 illicit drinking clubs, or speakeasies, in Hamilton alone, and they all needed supply, much of which came from the Perrys, who controlled most of the supply of liquor in southern Ontario and the southeastern United States. This amount of control did not come without complications, and Perry's status as King of the Bootleggers was an open secret, because while a man, and many of the newspapers at the time, can say some things about someone, it was another thing entirely to prove it in a court of law, and that was the issue that the Ontario Provincial Police had time and time again with the Perrys. No matter how many times they raided the Perrys' house or businesses or brought the Perrys in for questioning, they never seemed to find enough evidence to convict, even when Rocco seemed to be one degree of separation from the largest number of deaths to come from faulty alcohol in Canadian history. You see, prohibition didn't mean that all alcohol stopped being produced. Many factories couldn't do without some form of raw industrial alcohol, which was incredibly cheap to make compared to alcohol made for consumption. This provided an opportunity for those who could get a hold of large quantities of this industrial-grade alcohol. If it was diluted down with water, someone could take it and drink it like vodka, at about a tenth of the price to produce, and without the aging process that many higher-quality liquors had to go through. But desperate times called for desperate measures, and when they became aware of this problem, the Canadian government had a novel solution to people drinking this industrial alcohol. They poisoned it. It was made mandatory that factories had to denature any alcohol used in production by adding methanol, kerosene, and formaldehyde, making it impossible to be consumed. Even this method didn't stop many enterprising bootleggers, who brought large amounts of this denatured alcohol at about a dollar a gallon and tried their best to filter and distill it down to remove the poisonous additives. They then added some coloring and some caramel syrup and sold it as quote-unquote whiskey or quote-unquote rum. That being said, the quality of this alcohol was significantly lower and provided a much higher risk to the consumer, and all it would take would be one faulty batch to cause a significant amount of sickness and death. Perhaps you can guess what happened next. On July 17, 1926, a batch of 1,200 gallons of alcohol, which turned out to be 94% highly toxic wood alcohol, was sent out to be sold. Two weeks later, there were 44 people who had died due to the consumption of that batch of alcohol, and the authorities had to act. Rocco Perry was one of the people sought after in this sweep on both sides of the border, and he gave himself up to the police on July 31st with his lawyer in tow. By and large, he treated the police amicably, and they treated him the same. During his four weeks in prison while his case was being remanded, he was made comfortable with high-quality pillows and sheets brought to him by friends on the outside. After the Ontario Provincial Police were unable to tie Perry to the poison liquor, he was released on August 28th, no worse for wear. However, that sheer number of deaths was to cause a sea change in the liquor laws of the time. The policy of denaturing alcohol was thrown out, and Ontario Premier George Howard Ferguson called a snap election and ran on the policy of abolishing the Ontario Temperance Act and turning all liquor sales over to the government. On December 1st, 1926, Ferguson won, and work began on dismantling the temperance legislation, both for the safety of the product and, from the government's point of view, being able to get some tax revenue from the sales therein. 
That being said, with this many people dying, the government could not let things continue the way they were. The Canadian government called for a royal commission into bootlegging, corruption with regards to border officials, and distillery sales, which got underway on November 17, 1926. The commission took testimony from all across Canada, from coast to coast. When the committee arrived in Toronto, they concentrated on bringing in many of the associates of the Perry family. Coincidentally, many of the financial records asked for by the commission were somehow lost in the night. Executives for the distillery that provided the Perrys with alcohol seemed to have left the country in a hurry, and the commission was forced to threaten the revocation of the liquor license of any distillery that refused to cooperate. Once Rocco realized that his suppliers would actually have to testify before the commission, he decided to also vanish. Various Perry associates took the stand in front of the commission, including Bessie Perry herself, answering the questions as asked and providing no further details, to the great frustration of the commission. While the commission carried on, the authorities were trying to find Rocco Perry to subpoena him to testify, but Perry stayed one step ahead, continually moving around Ontario to avoid that particular situation. It was inevitable that he would have to testify at some point, but the more he delayed, the more he and his lawyer would be able to gauge the commission's strategy in what information they were looking for, and how exposed Perry was. Finally, the police found where he was staying at the time in Hamilton, created a ruckus to lure him downstairs, and shoved a subpoena in his hands, demanding that he appear before the commission. Rocco Perry was going to have to testify after all. During his testimony, Rocco claimed to have a failing memory, to the point where he couldn't even remember where he was over the last couple weeks while the police were trying to find him. Despite the open skepticism of the commission, he stuck to that line as much as possible, his memory only improving when he saw that the commission had undeniable evidence of some aspect of his organization, such as when some people used his household phone to call distilleries, breweries, and customs agents that may or may not have been on the take. In reality, it was Rocco and Bessie using the phone to check on deliveries, but that wasn't a thing one could say in this hearing and stay out of prison. While Rocco managed to avoid saying anything incriminating while he was on the stand, the commission still managed to find where the Perrys kept their wealth. As it turned out, all the money was kept under Bessie's name, and between 1916, when the Perrys started their venture, and 1927, over $960,000, $14 million today, had gone through those accounts at one point or another. That is a significant amount of money for a macaroni salesman and his wife, which is what the Perrys claimed to be. Additionally, more and more Perry associates took the stand, painting a picture that the Perrys were in fact still active in the alcohol smuggling business. One of the judges for the commission declared that both Perrys were guilty of perjury and that they should be prosecuted. The problem? Both Perrys had vanished almost as soon as they were not required to be on the stand anymore. As the commission continued its work, there were more and more breweries and distilleries that were seen to have either sold liquor knowing that it would be distributed illegally, or hiding it from authorities themselves, avoiding having to pay sales taxes on it. On May 23, 1927, the Government of Canada filed a lawsuit against Gooderham and Warts, a distillery that was one of the Perry's largest suppliers, for unpaid sales taxes totaling over $430,000, or about $6.4 million today. The government also found that of the 28 breweries that they investigated, 
27 of them avoided sales taxes paid on their products, and urged that something be done to end the corruption of customs agents and police that allowed this to go on for so long. With these recommendations in place, the Perrys knew that hiding would not help them anymore, and on June 15, 1927, in the company of their lawyer, they surrendered themselves to the police and were immediately released on bail to return when their trial was to start. When the trial started, the Perrys all of a sudden seemed to have a new strategy. Both Rocco and Bessie admitted that they were part of an alcohol smuggling ring, and more so, they got their supply from Gooderham and Warts. This new strategy was because the Perrys were now star witnesses in the suit against Gooderham and Warts, as the Crown needed to prove that the company was hiding alcohol to avoid sales taxes. Both Perrys wanted and received protection from the court, meaning that whatever they said in that case could not be used against them in their perjury trial. Even with that condition, Rocco ended up being charged for one count of perjury and sentenced to six months in prison. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police were thrilled that they finally managed to put the famed Rocco Perry behind bars, and the newspaper at the time were filled with the story of the self-styled King of the Bootleggers getting his comeuppance at last. So, that has to be the end of the story, right? Charismatic bootlegging kingpin of Ontario, brought down by perjury proven by a dedicated police force, and a royal commission that ferreted out many of the dirty secrets of the industry. Was it tax evasion not of his own, but of his suppliers that brought his story to its inevitable finale? Oh, not even close. Stay tuned for the second part of this episode in two weeks. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you then. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch, who makes me sound better than I have a right to be. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at WhatExplainPod, or on our Facebook page as WhatExplainPodcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Also, word of mouth works just as well. So if you have a friend, acquaintance, family member, heck, even an enemy that you think might like this podcast, let them know about it. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks with part two of King of the Bootleggers.